Well, if you're able to stand as we take up God's Word once again, turning to three passages in the New Testament. The first, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47, and then two readings from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, verses 17 to 26, and then Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 31. Those will be the three passages that introduce the major ideas in our sermon this evening. Before we hear that part of God's Word, let's ask His blessing again. Gracious God, please now give to me, your servant, uh, a clear expression of biblical truth and give to all of us as your servants eyes to see your glory, ears to hear your word, and hearts to receive, believe, and rejoice in it. Strengthen us, O God, in a proper understanding of the gospel. Let the words and foolishness of man fall to the ground and only that truth uh, testified by your spirit to remain within us. Burn that deeply upon our hearts and give strength to our souls by means of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 44, this is the word of God. Then Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, this is Peter's sermon at the temple Uh, on the same day that Peter and John, going up for the hour of morning prayer, found a lame man and healed him and gathered quite a crowd. Peter, having rebuked them for murdering the Lord, says this, verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever He says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And then chapter 17 of the same book, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, the Apostle Paul preaching in the city of Athens at the Areopagus, says this, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. 
And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring." Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So you do have a study guide tonight if you want to take those notes, either follow along or take them home and chew on a few of the things we're going to talk about this evening. In some ways, the things we're talking about tonight are going to be, I think, very familiar. They're ideas that we've shared repeatedly pretty much every year because over the last however many years, it's been our custom having preached through the Westminster Confession of Faith on Sunday nights. We, be, we began preaching through the, uh, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, and, and uh, so we've made our way through that uh, work almost two times now. And uh, so we've thought a lot about this relationship between repentance and saving faith, or repentance and the gospel, or repentance and salvation, or tonight, as we're expressing it, repentance and justification. And I want to begin by asking you this question, do you believe that a person must repent in order to be forgiven of his sins? How would you answer that question? You know, would you say, oh, well, ordinarily... Or maybe you'd say, well, Pastor Joel, what, like, what do you mean by that? Do you, do you mean that I have to be conscious of every sin that I commit and, and specifically, individually, deliberately repent of each one of them in order to be forgiven of each one of them? Well, in that case, none of us are going to be saved because you have no idea how many sins you are guilty of right now, nor do I. And so there is a place, as we've discussed many times from God's Word, there is a place for repenting of particular sins particularly, and a place for a general posture of repentance. I, I repent of my sins, and I repent of my sin in general, broadly, because I know that I am, sadly, a sinner. But speaking more globally, is it necessary for a person to repent in order to be forgiven of being a sinner? Well, I think you see in the three passages that we just read, and dozens of others that we could read to the same effect, that Jesus said clearly, repentance is required. And repentance is required not as a postcedent condition. In other words, it's not that you are forgiven, and because you are forgiven, now you repent. No, the, the, these passages are pretty clear that you must repent in order to be forgiven. And now that sounds like works righteousness. And now we've lost the gospel, and now we really are all lost. Well, no, no. We can be biblical and confessional, and we can uphold that gospel of free grace and the principle of justification through faith alone. And we can hold all of these ideas together. In fact, that's what I believe the Bible does so very well. The gospel that was preached by Jesus and then by the apostles after his resurrection is a gospel that calls men to repentance and promises them everlasting life on the other side of repentance. And if Jesus preached that message, and if the apostles preached that message, 
then we certainly should be willing to do the same. Now, let's start off just by asking the question, can we really biblically and even confessionally justify this kind of connection between repentance and justification? Can we say that justification and the forgiveness of sins is conditioned upon our repentance? Well, the Scripture clearly says so, and so too does our Reformed heritage. Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, Jesus says twice, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You must repent in order not to perish, which means you must repent in order to be saved. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Do you want to receive the promise of the Spirit of which Peter had been speaking and citing various texts from the Old Testament? Then you must repent and be baptized. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, defines repentance in this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, I won't take the time to elaborate this point tonight, but I will mention it so you can go home and kind of review your catechism and see the point. You would do well to pay attention to the way that the catechism uses the reference to a sinner. Because here, the catechism is not saying repentance unto life is when a sinner, as all of us are, turns to God. Oh, sure, we do repent and we are sinners, but it's talking about an alien sinner here, clearly in the context. Read the preceding questions. This is an alien sinner who realizes the jeopardy that he is in. And he realizes the the evil of his sin, and he is horrified by it. And at the same time, he perceives the greatness of God's mercy, and he flees from wrath to life. Life, life, eternal life. He runs toward the celestial city, crying out for grace. That's what repentance is in that particular catechism question. And Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, uh, article 3, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin, or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Is that, you, you, can't, you can't look at your repentance and say, here is an, e- an equal satisfaction. I give God repentance and he gives me the forgiveness of sins. No, no, no. God saves me because I repent. Uh, No, no. He doesn't save you because you repent. He doesn't save you because you believe. He saves you because he is good. He saves you because of the work of his son. The cause of our salvation is God's free grace alone. It's not because of repentance. It's not because of faith. But it is through faith, and as we'll see tonight, through repentance. If we say that repentance is not necessary for forgiveness, then quite simply we are contradicting the Scriptures and our own confessional standards. But as we've said many times before, you can think of faith and repentance as two sides of the same coin, the two being one act seen in two perspectives. When you're talking about faith, You are thinking about this act 
in reference to Christ. When you talk about repentance, you are thinking about the same act in reference to our sin. Two perspectives, two vantage points, but we're looking at one thing. It may look a little bit different. We may describe it a little bit differently on one side as opposed to the other, but it's the same thing. We do not have faith and repentance. We are not suggesting that in order to be justified, a person has to believe and then also repent. But rather, we are saying that faith and repentance are the description of man's response to the gospel through which he apprehends the mercy of God in Christ. John Murray says it this way in the little book that I have frequently recommended to you. If you have not bought that yet and read it, then it's your own fault because I've told you many times you should. John Murray says this in Redemption Accomplished Applied. Quote, the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance, end quote. John Frame echoes the same idea. He says this in his Systematic Theology, quote, Faith and repentance are two names for the same heart attitude, end quote. Are we justified through faith or are we justified through repentance? Is it faith alone or is it repentance alone? Well, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Because faith and repentance are two names by which we describe the same penitent, believing posture. The same penitent, believing response to God. There is no true faith without repentance. And there is no true repentance without faith in Christ. You cannot divide these two. If you seek to divide them, they both die. They are conjoined. And if you try to cut them apart, neither one can survive on its own. You see this in the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, where two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And what does the tax collector say? He will not lift his eyes to heaven. He will not draw near to God's holy presence. He casts his gaze down. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Is he he a, a believer or is he repenting at that moment? Does he have faith or does he have repentance? He has a penitent faith. He has a believing repentance. And if you take either of those out of the equation, that man does not go down to his house justified. We've read and studied several times recently in the first epistle of John, and one of the things that we've seen again and again is that the one who says, I know God, but does not obey Him is a liar. Well, similarly, the one who says, I believe in God, but remains impenitent, is a liar. He doesn't believe in God. He may believe in the existence of God. He may believe in the historical acts of God. He may believe that the Bible is the Word of God. But he does not, in a saving way, believe in God if he is unrepentant. And the problem is that many times we think of faith, even though we say that this is not the case, we think of faith as if it were simply knowledge and assent. It's a set of facts to believe. It is agreement that these things are true and that the promises held out within them will indeed be given to those who apprehend them in faith. And yet we we leave off that last part of trust and entrusting ourselves to God And we think that a person can have faith and yet still remain impenitent. It is not the case. No one who is impenitent is trusting savingly 
in Jesus. Likewise, a behavioral change without faith is not repentance unto life. It is only a modification of habits. A person can turn his life around. He can be very moral. He could be very religious and go to hell when he dies because he doesn't believe in the Lord. You don't need just influencers to help you learn how to be more disciplined, how to, how to get up earlier in the morning, how to exercise regularly, how to learn a language, how to read the Bible. You, you don't need influencers to teach you that because that, that's not repentance. That's just changing your habits. Repentance involves believing in Christ. And so when we say, when we say that we believe that a man is justified through faith alone, we should be careful that we do not mean by that man is justified through believing without repenting. Or man is justified through faith apart from repentance. Because that's not what the scriptures teach. And it's not, newsflash, what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches, or the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Westminster Catechisms. Rather, we should understand the instrument of justification as a faith that repents, or a penitent faith. And as we see, even in the passages that we read at the beginning of our study, and can find elsewhere in the New Testament, in many places, faith and repentance are used as interchangeable terms in gospel preaching and response. What does Jesus say? He says, repentance and the forgiveness of sin should be preached to all nations. And all the Reformed Christians of the room are saying, Lord, didn't you mean faith? That's what I said. Repentance and the remission of sins. Because you do not have faith if you are impenitent. You do not have faith if you remain impenitent in your sin. Now, why is this hard to understand? It's probably not hard for our congregation to understand because we talk about this a lot, but why is it hard for many people to understand this? I think it's because of a more fundamental misunderstanding that we have. Some Christians, I think, deny the condition of repentance in relation to justification out of an allegiance to justification by faith alone. They think that their commitment to that Sola of the Protestant Reformation requires them to deny that repentance can in any way be a condition of our justification. Faith is the alone instrument of our justification, as our confession says. But our confession also says it is never at any point alone in the person who is justified. And it's important to realize that we are not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ. We're not saved because of our faith. We are saved because of God's grace. Faith is the instrument. It is the straw that gets the milkshake from the cup into your mouth. But it is, it is not the cause of our justification. It's the instrument whereby we are united to Christ and through that union receive all of His benefits. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think many Christians imagine that if we acknowledge that a person must repent in order to be forgiven, then we're somehow adding works into the equation. But no, all we're doing is acknowledging what the New Testament says everywhere. And that is that we are justified through trusting in Christ. Saving faith is living and active And it's active doing what? Repenting, loving, rejoicing, obeying. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6? 
Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, as he is warning the brethren, this is not a legalistic passage. If you look at the context, he's warning the brethren, if you turn back to the law, then you, you are fallen from grace, you are cut off from Christ. There is no salvation there. But what does he say? Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That's what counts. Not circumcision, not law-keeping, not all of your various religious works that you want to offer to God, but, but what counts? Faith working through love. And faith is always living and active in the person who is justified. That's why James, at length, describes this faith that cannot save, that cannot justify, because it is dead. He does not say in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, that faith must have works added to it in order to be effective. No. He says the faith that is effective is a faith that is living from the beginning. It trusts in Christ. What does that look like? Repentance. Repentance. And a commitment to a new obedience that will follow as the fruit and evidence of that justification. The Westminster Confession of Faith, again, in chapter 14, article 2, says this, By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God Himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Now, what does that last clause mean? The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. I I think I know some brethren who believe that what that actually says is that the only acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. But that's clearly not what it says. It says fundamentally this is what faith does. When faith is repenting, do you know what it's doing? Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. When faith is obeying God's command that he has met somewhere in the Scripture, do you you know what principally, what fundamentally faith is doing at that moment? It's accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. Do you you know what faith is doing when it is trembling at the threats of God's judgment as it comes to them in the the biblical text? Well, at that moment, it's, it's principally, it's fundamentally accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. There's a lot of things that faith does. And faith does those things all the time. Because faith is alive. Faith is a living thing. It's an active thing. But you know what faith fundamentally does? It accepts, it receives, and it rests upon Christ. That's the point that the confession is making. This means that fundamentally, it is faith that receives Jesus. Not faith plus other things. Not faith plus the obedience that comes from it. It's faith. It's receiving Jesus. These are its principal acts. But not its only acts. It's fundamental posture and activity. But not its only activity. The misunderstanding in this case, I think, is twofold. There is a misunderstanding of the nature of what it means to affirm sola fide, that we are justified through faith alone, and a misunderstanding about the conditionality of salvation understood globally, broadly, in terms of final salvation. 
The context, first of all, of Westminster Confession 14.2 makes it clear that these principal acts are the fundamental operations of faith that undergird all of its other activity. In other words, you cannot say, I believe, but then disregard everything else that faith entails. You cannot say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't tremble at passages about judgment in my Bible. I believe in Jesus, but here is a command in Scripture that I know I ought to obey, but I find it inconvenient and unacceptable to do so right now. So what you're saying is that you don't believe in Jesus. That's what you're saying. You see, the the confession is making it very clear. Fundamentally, what faith does is it accepts Christ, it receives Christ, and it rests upon Christ. And it's doing that when it's obedient. It's doing that when it's penitent. It's doing that when it's trembling. It's doing that no matter what it's doing. Because that's fundamentally what faith is. It's accepting Christ, receiving Christ, resting upon Christ. It's not just thinking the right things about God or about history. It's not just that knowledge and assent. It's trusting the Lord. As the Confession says in chapter 11, article 2, faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces And is no dead faith, but worketh by love. It's never alone. It's not alone in the person justified. It's always accompanied by what? Well, by repentance, but nothing else. Okay, pastor, we'll allow you to, you know, kind of include repentance in the conversation. But the confession is saying all saving graces are bound up in faith. That's why we say it's through faith alone. It's not these other things. It's faith. Accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ. But that's not a dead acceptance. It's not a dead reception. It's not a dead resting. Faith is not passed out. Faith is not comatose. Right? Faith is resting in Jesus. Trusting in Him. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ. But Scripture and our standards make it clear that there is more involved in our salvation than just our justification. Did you notice there in uh, the the confession, uh, 14.2, that that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life? It's not just for our justification. It's not just for the forgiveness of my sins. It's not just to, to hear myself declared not guilty in the court of heaven. It's for growing in Christ. How does that happen? By faith alone. It's for becoming holy even as God is holy. How does that happen? By faith alone. How am I saved ultimately? It's through faith. But it's not faith by itself standing apart from all of the other saving graces that are operating within and through it. As Murray says again in Redemption Quote, we see therefore that the emphasis which Scripture places upon faith as the condition of salvation is not to be construed as if faith were the only condition, end quote. And yet I think that's the way that many, by no means all, but many Reformed Christians do construe it just that way. Faith is the condition of salvation, therefore it's the only condition. And Murray says that's self-evidently not true. You could read your Westminster Confession of Faith and know that. Of course that's not true. Do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? Oh, so you believe that a person has to continue to believe and continue to repent and be obedient to God in order to be saved on the last day? Okay. That's what the Bible teaches. Can we say that God requires repentance? Yes. 
we must say that very thing. One last quote from Murray, and then I'll leave him off the rest. Quote, the interdependence of faith and repentance can be readily seen when we remember that faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin. That's the kind of faith we're talking about, in other words. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it. Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists in turning from sin unto God, end quote. In other words, when you have faith in Jesus to be saved, you are necessarily, inevitably, inescapably saying that you recognize that your sin is evil and you hate it and want no part of it. So if you are believing in Jesus for salvation, you are repentant. And if you are repentant, truly repentant unto life, it's because you're looking to Christ. You're looking away from your sin and looking to your Savior. And those two attitudes are the very same thing. Now, what does repentance do? Well, the Catechism gives us four points that we will briefly review that are very, very helpful. Repentance, first of all, grieves for one's own sin. There's no true repentance without godly sorrow. The penitent man has to grieve over his sin. This is what Paul describes as godly sorrow in contrast to worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly sorrow is God toward in orientation. It's not just, I'm sorry that I was caught. I'm sorry that now you're angry. I'm sorry that there are consequences for the things that I've done. I am grieved because I know that I have offended God. I am grieved by the substance of what I have done. Whether anyone ever knows about it, it causes me to be ashamed. It causes me to be horrified. I I abhor myself because of what I have done. A penitent man doesn't look back fondly on his sin. He looks at it with shame and regret. That's why he abandons it. That's why he turns away from it. It's because he knows it's bad and he hates it. Faith is a new way of looking at Christ. Whereas repentance is the way we describe a new way of looking at yourself and your sin. When we trust in Jesus, we now see Him differently. We see Him as Lord. We see Him as Savior. Repentance is how we describe the way that you see yourself at that time. You see that you're a sinner and you see that your sin is truly a horrid thing. Secondly, repentance hates sin in general. And notice the contrast here. There's grief for my sin in particular, but there's hatred for sin as a category. Repentance changes our worldview, not just our private or personal view of certain acts. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. What do you care about other men? Like, you can have your own private religious beliefs, right? You know, as a Christian, of course, I'm opposed to abortion, but I think it should be legally, you know, it should be legal for any woman who wants to do it. Well, that that seems like a really reasonable position to take, right? I, I just have my own private personal beliefs. No, nonsense. Repentance involves grief over my sin and hatred for all sin. It's not just a matter of personal choice. It's rather a desire to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means we have to hate and oppose whatever opposes God. Because sin is contrary not only to the glory of God, but also to human flourishing. What would you think about one of your loved ones engaging in acts that were going to be harmful and destructive to them. If I knew my daughter was smoking meth, or my son was uh, going to commit suicide, oh, how would I respond to that? Would I say, well, you know, it's a, it's a personal choice. It's just, you know, it's, 
like I, my, my personal view as a Christian, of course, I wouldn't do something like that. But, you know, I think everybody should just be free to make up their own mind about those kinds of things. No, you would say, no, you must not do this. This would be grievous to you. You would hate that behavior. And that's how the penitent man sees sin. Not as something unfortunate, not as something undesirable, but as an offense against God that will bring curses and torment and ultimate destruction to an image bearer. That's why we plead with the unbeliever as those who are captive by the devil. They are held captive by sin. Their their reason has been obscured. Their minds are, are deceived. We want them to come to themselves, to come to their senses, and return to the Father's house. Sin in our community should grieve and provoke us in a similar manner, even if it's not as intense. Obviously, your, your grief and hatred of your own sin should be greater than your grief and hatred over the rest of the world's sin. And, and by the way, I've seen the opposite in pastoral counseling. I've seen people come in who have got major sin issues in their life, active, ongoing, besetting sins, but all they want to talk about is all of the sin and corruption in the nation right now. I don't have any desire to talk to you about that if you're coming to me because of a problem with a besetting sin. Like we, we, need to, we need to clean up our own house first. Let's tear down our idols before we start talking about our neighbors. But the point is that repentance doesn't leave a place for sin uh, to, to be a, a neutral category anywhere. Sin is an offense against God. Third, repentance sincerely rejoices in God. Repentance is not grudging, in other words. It's something that truly excites and delights us. The penitent man rejoices that he is given the opportunity to change his ways, to turn away from his idolatry to life everlasting. It's never grudging. It's never resentful. It's eager. It's excited. It's Zacchaeus saying, I want to climb the tree just to see the Lord. I want to come down and, and invite Him to my home. And then I want to freely offer the fruit of my repentance to Him. The work of repentance is directed and animated by our delight in Christ Jesus. This is what you see in one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on Christian repentance. And that is Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, you have verses 5 to 11 describing the sin that should be put off and put to death. And then in chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, the virtues that should be put on, the obedience that we're called unto. But it's all introduced in verses 1 through 4 of that chapter with fixing our eyes upon Christ, setting our minds on things above, delighting ourselves in Him. And it's because we have set our minds on things above, it's because we know that our life is hidden with Christ in God that we're ultimately animated in this work of repentance. Repentance gladly abandons sin and pursues the Lord Jesus out of joy for His mercy and goodness. Just like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, we count all of our other advantages as nothing. Giving up my sin is not a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice because Jesus is so much more precious. And fourth and finally, repentance involves love and delight in obedience to God. Repentance is not just habit changes. Because a penitent man not only hates his sin, he delights in in, in inculcating new habits of grace. Psalm 119 describes this in almost every every verse of the psalm. Just a few examples. Verse 2, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. That is not a man who views the law as his enemy. 
That is not a man who views the law as a minister of death and condemnation. That is not a man who finds the law a harsh taskmaster. I, I know I have to be obedient to God, and I'm going to do my best, but it's just like a lot of things in life. You have to grit your teeth and get through it. This psalmist loves God's law. He loves his word. He knows this is the life I am made to live. I delight myself in the way of obedience. No man who hates or resents the Lord's will is truly obedient or fully repentant, even if he is submissive. And there are a lot of examples of this in the Bible. By the way, like you, you need to look at that point and say, well, there I am, because that's, that's us most days, Right? Uh, I, I, there's, there are areas where the call of obedience, whether it is in my relationship with my wife, with my children, uh, with my job, with my brethren in the church, whatever it may be, obedience is not delightful to me sometimes. I'm going to do this because I know it's right, but I am not going to particularly enjoy it right at this moment. Okay? Praise God for that obedience, but just realize that's not true obedience. That's submission. And that's good. That's better than rebellion. But the full obedience, the full repentance that Scripture is calling us to and that the Spirit is working within us is not that half-hearted, grudging, resentful submission to the outward will of God. You see this in the book of Job. I'll just give this one example from Scripture. Job, throughout his sufferings, is saying a lot of true things about God. He's saying he is holy, he is righteous, But he's also saying, and he made a mistake. Like, I am not supposed to be punished in this way. God blesses the righteous, and he curses the wicked, and I am righteous, and so God has made a mistake. And if I could get an audience with him, I could straighten this out in half a minute. But ultimately, he's not going to give me that. And so even though Job is saying a lot of true things and a lot of good things, he says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And then in the next breath, he says, and yet I'm going to continue to press my case because I know that I'm in the right here. What happens when Yahweh shows up at the end of the story? Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, I was talking about things I don't understand. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now here's an interesting thing. God does not require Job to offer a sacrifice to atone for any of his sins. He does call Job to act as a priest in offering sacrifices for the sins of his friends. And yet, there is still a place for Job's repentance. And why is that? Because the obedience that God is seeking is not just doing the right thing because you know it's the right thing, and even though it's not what you want to do at this moment, you're going to be obedient because you're a Christian and that's what you're committed to. The obedience God's seeking is the obedience that delights in God's will and says, yes, Lord, I am glad to do what you command me to do. Repentance is not merely the negative side of faith, as if it only involved discontinuing sinful behavior. It's also seen in positive, active, energetic pursuit of God's will. And so the person who does not desire to obey God, to that extent, remains impenitent, no matter what they claim. Now, we need to finish this by making two basic points. Right? Hopefully all of this has been clear, but if it's clear then there are two basic points that we need to drive home. One, you already know, and that is that there is basically one requirement for church membership and one basis for church discipline. If repentance and saving faith are saying the same thing in two different ways, 
then the requirement for coming into the church is repentance. And the basis for excluding anyone from the church is unrepentance. So a person shows up and they say, I believe in God. I believe he is triune. I believe that Jesus is his son. I believe he died on the cross and rose the third day. And I subscribe to the Nicene Creed and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here I am. Receive me. You say, well, I, I guess we should receive him because he's obviously a believer. Obviously nothing. He's saying all the right things. Praise God. Is he repentant? What does that have to do with it? He has faith. Does he have faith? Or does he simply have the right knowledge, the right information, assenting to the right propositions? It's not saving faith. It's a part of saving faith, sure, but it's not saving faith. Is he repentant? That's the question. When we talk about looking for a credible profession of faith, when a a person comes to the church, that's what we're talking about. Is this a person who loves Christ and who loves Christ and hates his sin? And then why are people disciplined? Well, because they're impenitent. It doesn't really matter what the original offense might have been. It doesn't matter what the underlying charge might have been. The only reason people are disciplined is because they remain unrepentant. Because repentance is that fundamental in the forgiveness of our sins. But the second point that we need to finish with is this. You don't have perfect repentance. And neither do I. You don't have perfect faith. And neither do I. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, so I'm justified through faith, which means I'm justified through repentance, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not justified at all. Because what it sounds like is repentance is a pretty, pretty high bar. I'm pretty sure I don't get over that bar most of the time. And so maybe I'm not justified at all. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not forgiven. Well, that's not the point. The point is not that your imperfect repentance is not rewarded by God, Your repentance is like everything else in your life. It's all imperfect. It's all tainted by our inward corruption. It's all made imperfect by our sin. And it's all acceptable to God in Christ on the basis of the righteousness of His Son. You don't have perfect faith. You're the Father in Mark 9 that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you don't have perfect repentance. You are the person who is seeking sincerely to repent and daily having to repent of the inadequacy of your repentance. And Jesus has repented before you. Not for you, because you and I are still obligated to repent. But he has repented before you. That's what his baptism by John in the Jordan is all about. Do you remember what John was preaching in Matthew chapter 3? He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay, two things that Jesus doesn't need. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus says, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to show you what repentance is. I am going to go before you in the way of forgiveness and salvation. And you are going to be accounted as righteous, not because of the adequacy of your response to the gospel, but rather because of the perfect righteousness of God's Son. That doesn't change the fact that this is what repentance is. And we need to think about repentance biblically. We need to think about it in a whole-bodied sort of way. Not in this emaciated way that so often we do, where repentance just really becomes saying, I'm sorry, and then going back to business as usual. Repentance in Scripture is another way of saying, I believe in Jesus I am yours, save me.
And in doing that, I am turning away from my idols and laying my assets down. And I am turning with empty hands and a broken and contrite heart to the Lord and leaning upon Him and His mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.